Good morning. Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. As long as your fingers aren't too stiff and cold, is uh, it is chilly. It is chilly now. Matthew chapter 17 is where we'll be this morning. It's wonderful that we have the kids in here with us because I have a question for all the kids in service. Do you guys like to do things all by yourself? They're saying no. They're saying no. That's not what I expected. Usually short little people. Maybe this is the little, little guys, right? Maybe the, the three-year-old. You guys are way older than three, right? That's what, Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Well, three-year-olds and below, those toddlers love to do things by themselves. I can do it myself. I don't need any help, right? Whether you're a, an aunt or an uncle or a parent or a grandparent, or, you know, we've all seen toddlers. Fiercely independent, regardless of whether they can actually do it or not, right? They're, they're learning their way in the world, right? They're figuring out how to be independent. Uh, but at the same time, those, those dear little toddlers and their attempts at full independence uh, from their parents' help can cause some pretty major disasters, right? Pretty major disasters. But... Do we approach our relationship with God the same way? Do you approach God trusting more in your own abilities rather than realizing your dependent need for Him? Sometimes we can be a lot like toddlers. And that's the way the disciples approach a demon-possessed boy in our text this morning, depending on themselves rather than on God. And Jesus will teach them and us the necessity of faith-filled dependence upon God in order to be effective workers for the kingdom of heaven. Let's read our text starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we hear it. Our Lord and our God, you are almighty and you are faithful to your word. There's nothing in Scripture that is there accidentally or coincidentally, but Lord, all things in your word are there for our instruction and our growth in godliness and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we pray this morning that we would grow in those things, that we would grow in our understanding of your will for us, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and in our, our holiness, our relationship with you, and Lord, that we would understand who Jesus Christ is more. And Lord, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit as your word is preached. Lord, my, my preaching, my words mean nothing. And they accomplish nothing, Lord. It is you by your Spirit who uses your word for your purposes. And we beg of you, Lord, do so this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of the sermon is Little Faith and Failed Attempts. And there's three major things we see in this text. First, we see a father's request and the disciples' failure. And next, we see Jesus' indignation and perfect success. And finally, the disciples' lack of faith, fasting, and prayer. Now, last week, we were, we were in the previous section of Matthew 17, looking at the transfiguration, where Jesus on the mount uh, reveals his glory. He's there with Moses and Elijah. Really a wonderful moment, the glory of the Son of God revealed. And he and his disciples come back down the mountain. And as we come to verse 14, when they get there, when they get to the bottom, they find a large crowd gathered there. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three uh, writers in the Bible who wrote the Gospels, um, they cover this situation with varying amounts of detail. So, uh, Matthew is pretty succinct. There's a lot of details that he doesn't include that we find in Mark and Luke. So, we'll, we'll kind of reference Mark and Luke today uh, to get a little bit more detail, a little bit more context. Now, when Jesus and the, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, arrive at the bottom of the mountain, Mark tells us in Mark 9 that the other nine disciples who didn't go up the mountain are there surrounded by a crowd and arguing with the scribes. They're arguing with the teachers of the law. That's the scene that Jesus and, and his inner circle come back down to, a commotion. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? And a man comes forward and kneels before Jesus, coming to him in a posture of reverence, of, of humility, of respect, of need. And we see the same thing in verse 14 of our text this morning. And in verse 15, this, this man makes a request of Jesus. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my son. Now, this man doesn't seem to be insincere. He's, he's genuine in this request. He addresses Jesus as Lord, which in Matthew's gospel, that's a sign of somebody who has genuine faith in Jesus. They, they address him as Lord. And he appeals to Jesus' merciful and compassionate nature. Never once in the Bible do we see Jesus refuse a person's appeal for mercy. Jesus does not turn away a single person who comes to him seeking mercy, seeking his compassion. To such a person, Jesus doesn't know the meaning of the word, no. He always receives such people. And this distressed father comes to Jesus seeking mercy for his son because as we read in 15, he's in great suffering. He's in a very difficult situation. He's an epileptic. He has seizures. He suffers terribly. Mark and Luke add some more vivid details here, describing how this boy is thrown to the ground by an evil spirit, foaming at the mouth, unable to speak, writhing in pain. Horrible thing for a father to have to watch. And in Mark and Luke's gospel, the focus, as I mentioned, they, they, they identify this evil spirit at work. They focus more on the spiritual nature of this problem. Matthew describes it a little bit more in the, the context of illness, seizures. Now, the Bible isn't saying, of course, that epilepsy is caused by demons. That's not what the Bible is teaching, and that's not uh, what we as Christians believe. Um, we have to understand, in the ancient world, the lines between illness and demonic activity were kind of blurred. Right? They didn't have the scientific knowledge we have today to be able to determine, is this a physiological cause? Is it, right? They didn't have that information. Um, really, it's that this demonic possession 
presents itself with symptoms similar to epilepsy, right? So if you're epileptic, you're not, you're not demon-possessed, right? That's not what this is saying. Matthew also includes here that this boy often um, falls into the fire and other times into the water. Now, this is a very dangerous situation. Uh, the demon is actually trying to harm its host. He's trying to harm this boy by throwing him into the fire that he might burn or throwing him into the water that he might drown. So the father, out of love and concern for his son, does what any good father would do. He brings him forward to be healed. Have mercy on my son. He brings him forward to be delivered from this evil spirit and the suffering that it's causing. But as we look at verse 16, we see that Jesus is actually the second opinion. Now, he's the second stop in this father's journey to get help for his son. Now, the father continues speaking and he says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. The father reveals, I've already sought help for my, my boy your disciples could do nothing. Now, Jesus has been up on the mountain for this period of time, right, with his inner circle. The other nine disciples are down at the bottom, and it's very likely that this father heard reports Jesus is in the area. He goes looking for him. He finds the nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain, and he says, hey, you guys are Jesus' disciples. Can you help me? But tragically, they were not able to do so. Their attempts to cast out the demon and heal this boy, failed. They were powerless to help, as hard as they might have tried. Why? And we'll find out as we, as we read on. But you can imagine the position of this father, can't you? Discouraged, frustrated that the disciples can do nothing to help him? When all of a sudden Jesus appears from the mountain, right? What a moment of hope that must have been for this man, right? He's not dealing with the, with the flunkies anymore, right? He's got the manager. So will Jesus be able to succeed where the disciples failed? Yes. That's what we see in the next two verses, 17 and 18. Jesus' indignation and perfect success. Now, Jesus has a very interesting response to the disciples' failure. It's very interesting. It's a little puzzling. What he says in response to this, this distressed father is, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to deal with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Now, now, clearly, Jesus is upset. He's indignant about something. He, he's perhaps even righteously frustrated at, uh, at unbelief. But the question is, who is Jesus talking to? Who is he referring to? Right? Who is he describing it this crooked, as this crooked and twisted generation? Is it the Father? Is it the disciples? Is it the scribes, the religious leaders? It's kind of a difficult question to answer. But I think everybody in the scene is implicated to some degree in Jesus' righteous exasperation. Let's consider the father for a moment. Now, in Matthew's account, the father doesn't seem to lack faith. Right? He seems to be a very faith-filled man. Um, but when we look at Mark's account, we see a little bit of a different perspective. Turn over to Mark chapter 9 really, really fast with me. Mark chapter 9. And we see a, a, a little bit different perspective, a little bit more of the conversation that this man has with Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verses 22 and 24. Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the man says, from childhood. 
and it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now look at what Jesus says next. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. A prayer many of us perhaps have prayed at times ourselves. Now this father is not completely faithless. He has faith. But at the same time, he is greatly lacking in faith. And his faith is battling unbelief. If you can. There's uncertainty there, there isn't there? There's hesitancy there, isn't there? He has reservation that maybe Jesus can't actually do this. If you can. So it seems that perhaps he is included as part of the unbelieving generation. And we know the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they've rejected Jesus entirely. And Jesus refers to them in similar terms elsewhere in the Gospels, describing them as spiritually adulterous, sinful, crooked, unbelieving. So they're certainly included in this uh, exasperation as well. And the disciples themselves, we'll see in a moment, also lack faith. We've already seen in Matthew how they tend to waver back and forth. Um, really, everybody there at the base of the mountain is a member, to some degree, of this faithless and twisted generation. They lack faith in the Messiah. And they're twisted, they're crooked, they're, they're turned around from the way they should go. And Jesus' exasperation and his exclamation here, as one commentator notes, reveals that Jesus is actually distanced from this generation. He's not part of it. He has no unbelief. He's not crooked. He's not twisted. He doesn't share the sinful, weak lack of faith that, that every other human on earth, uh, us included, has. I mean, he's not part of this generation. He's, he's instead constantly confronted by this generation. Everywhere he goes, unbelief is present. And it's an inexcusable unbelief. But nonetheless, as I said before, Jesus never turns away a single person who comes to him seeking mercy, even if they come lacking faith. And he tells the father to bring the boy to him. He says, bring him here. Bring him here. He's still willing to help those who come to him, whether their faith is great or small. What an encouragement that should be for us. And so in verse 18, the boy's brought forward. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us that when he comes to Jesus, uh, the demon actually fights back and he throws the boy on the ground. He induces a seizure. He causes him to roll around and, and foam at the mouth. Uh, but this is no obstacle for Jesus. All Jesus does is rebuke the demon. says, go on, get out. And the boy's healed instantly. At, at merely a word, Jesus is able to do what the disciples could not do. Right? It was no difficulty for Jesus to cast this demon out and to heal this boy. No trouble, no problem. And the result was, as Luke tells us, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Everybody looks at Jesus' power and they go, wow, praise God, this is amazing. Look at what God can do. And we know, of course, Jesus is the Son of God. We talked a lot about that last week, that he has power, he has authority, he has ability in himself that the disciples, that you and I, don't have. Right? Even though he's fully human, he's also fully divine. So, in one sense, should we be surprised that this is so easy for Jesus? No. No, especially when we consider everything else we've seen him do in Matthew's Gospel. 
healing many, many, many different kinds of people, um, bringing somebody back from the dead, completely stilling a storm, multiplying bread and fish for 20,000 people. Casting out a demon is no big deal for Jesus. But as we'll see in a moment, casting out this demon should have been doable for the disciples. It's something they should have been able to do, right? Again, this isn't something only Jesus could have done in that day, like his other miracles. So why did the disciples fail? Um, that's really the question that's at the crux of this text. Why did the disciples fail? And that's the question the disciples themselves have in verses 19 through 21. We see the disciples' lack of faith, fasting, and prayer. Now, after this event, the disciples come to Jesus privately, privately with a pressing question. Why could we not cast the demon out? Why couldn't we do it? Why not? This is an understandable question, right? We ask why about things all the time. But this is also a very revealing question. Ultimately, it reveals that the disciples expected they would be able to do this. But more than that, it reveals that the disciples trusted in themselves to do this work. Why couldn't we do this? Notice where the emphasis of the question is. Why could we, your disciples, not cast this demon out? You see, the disciples had approached this problem with too much focus on themselves. Too much focus on what they thought they could do. Rather than focusing on what God could do. The very, the very question they ask is centered on their own abilities. Why didn't we have the ability to do it? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? Friends, how often do we find ourselves wondering the same thing? Perhaps not in regard to, to demons. Um, but perhaps in regard to the struggle that we have against our own sin. How often do we ask, why do I continue to do this? Or why can't I get past this sin? Why can't I stop acting or feeling this way? And how often do we ask this question with the focus on our own abilities? Focus on ourselves. In other words, what do I have to do to get rid of this? Or what do I have to do to overcome this? Reliance and focus upon our own strength is an endeavor doomed to failure. Reliance upon our own strength is an endeavor doomed to failure. If we are the problem, we won't be the solution. That doesn't mean we're not involved in the solution, but it's not going to be us. It's not going to be us. And so Jesus in verse 20 answers the disciples. He gives them an explanation of, of, of why they couldn't cast this demon out. And this answer also helps us in our own difficulties, our own failed attempts. And we read in verse 20 that the cause of their failure is because of their little faith. Because of their little faith. The disciples lacked faith. Now, that doesn't mean the disciples are atheists. Of course they're not. That doesn't mean the disciples are, are you know, complete fake Christians or something like that, that's not what we're talking about. We need to define what kind of faith is in view here. When Jesus says, because of your little faith, what's he talking about? Now, when we talk um, about salvation, we talk about being 
saved by faith alone, right? So up there on the wall, we're saved through faith alone, sola fide. Not our works, but faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what we call justifying faith or saving faith, right? This is the faith that we, that we have when we go from being an unbeliever to being a Christian. This is radically life-changing, Christ-trusting for salvation faith, right? It's composed of three ingredients. We need to know things about Jesus, about the gospel. We need to agree with those things, right? Okay, Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins. I agree that this is true. And then the third ingredient is personal trust. Personal trust. Not only do I know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and rose again, not only do I agree that that is historically accurate and true, but I'm also going to set my own righteousness aside and trust Jesus alone to save me. That's saving faith. Trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But that's not the kind of faith Jesus is talking about here. This kind of faith is the daily dependence, the daily resting in who God is, the daily reliance on Him, His power, His sovereignty, His knowledge. This kind of faith is actually the fruit of our salvation. We could, we could, we could say it's like the child of saving faith. But with all fruit, its quantity can be great or small. There are many Christians who have great faith and trust God radically. Uh, one of the most well-known um, in, in the past few centuries is George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller was a British Christian who ran an orphanage in the 1800s, um, and he was known for his, his radical faith in God, his radical daily trust in God's power and provision. Uh, one particular story illustrates this well. Um, one morning in the orphanage, Mueller awoke, and there was no food. Right? There's 300 children there. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And there is no food left. They've eaten it all up. And so Mueller instructs the, the, the house mother uh, of the orphanage, seat all the children in the dining room. And he goes in there, he prays and thanks God for food, and they wait for God to provide, as God always did. And within minutes, a baker knocked at the door. He says, Mr. Mueller, uh, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning, so I got up, I baked three batches for you, um, I have it outside, I'll, I'll bring it in. A few minutes later, another knock on the door. A milkman whose cart had broken down outside the orphanage. Now the milk would spoil by the time that the cart got fixed. And so the milkman said, hey, would you guys like this milk? I can't use it. It's going to go bad. Would you like it? Incredible how God provides. Yet not outside of what he's able to do by any stretch. George Mueller had an extraordinary trust in the power and provision of God, and he lived accordingly. God honored his, his faith and dependence upon him. Yet there are other Christians who are no less Christian than George Mueller who are still destined for heaven, but struggle to trust God with much smaller problems. Right? Who have little faith, right? Believe God exists, they trust Jesus' death to save them, but they are much more hesitant to trust God minute to minute, day by day with their, their needs, their future, their finances, their family, their health. Those things outside of salvation, right? At the end of the day, we put George Mueller over here and the disciples over here. Um, 
most of us are probably a lot more like the disciples than we are a man like George Mueller or the Apostle Paul. Most of us struggle at times to really believe verses like Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. We tend to suffer from a chronic lack of faith. And, and yet, it is faith that's essential to our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And Jesus illustrates this in verse 20 with, with a little story, a figurative example, a, a parable of sorts. He tells him, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, a grain of mustard seed, which, if you recall from our time in the parables, is a very, 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 very small seed. Jesus says, if you have that much faith, you'll be able to say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will do it. The mustard seed and the mountain. Now, this is not a, a literal statement here. Of course, the disciples should not have expected to literally make a mountain move because they believed they could. What's Jesus' point? His point is that rather, uh, through faith-filled people, God accomplishes incredible things. Through faith-filled people, God accomplishes incredible things. And this highlights just how little faith the disciples had. Less than a grain of mustard seed. Less than a grain of mustard seed. But if they had had that much, they would have seen something amazing that day. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that our, our faith is like a superpower, right? That if we have more faith, we have more, more powers, you know, or something like that. Um, that's actually the opposite of what faith is and does. Right? Uh, the greater our faith, the more reliance we have on the living God. And the more reliance we have on the living God who has all power, the more we desire to see His purposes accomplished, the more we desire to see His kingdom come, the more our willingness to see His kingdom advance and participate in that increases. In other words, the more faith we have, the more useful we are in the hands of God. The more faith we have, the more useful we are in the hands of God. Now think for a minute about a carpenter, right? Carpenters use a, a bunch of different tools. Hammers, planes, saws, measuring tapes, squares, screws, nails, levels, all kinds of things, right? Can you imagine how effectively a carpenter could build a house if his hammer was made of rubber? He's not going to be able to drive any nails with that thing, right? Can you imagine how well a carpenter could cut a log or a 2 by 4 if his saw was made of paper? It's not going to work, right? It's not going to work at all. Those tools are not useful. They would make the work more difficult. Now, God is not limited by us. Right? He's, he's Almighty God. He's sovereign. He does whatever He wants. He's not limited by us. But rather, we are limited in our effectiveness by our lack of faith. Our effectiveness is proportionate to our faith. So much so that Jesus says something pretty strong at the end of verse 20. He says, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. We've got, we got to think about that for a minute, right? Uh, what is Jesus saying? There, this needs a little bit, of, little bit of qualification. But it's still a very striking statement. Now, we know Luke 137 is true. Nothing is impossible for God, right? And that's kind of the, the overriding truth here, right? God's sovereignty overrules all things, right? God's will always wins. And Jesus is not saying that if we have enough faith, we get superpowers and can do whatever we want. Right? A man who has full faith, he can fly off the top of a, a skyscraper. We'll find out very quickly that 
Jesus does not literally mean nothing will be impossible for you. This has to be understood within the context of the kingdom of God. It has to be understood within the context of the kingdom of God. The greater faith we have, the more we will seek God's will instead of ours. And the more we seek his kingdom instead of ours, the more we seek his purposes instead of ours. And the more we do that, the more we will see God do seemingly impossible things. Why? Because he always accomplishes his purposes. Our lack of faith causes us to run off after our purposes instead of God's. The disciples had little faith, and they went to go deliver this boy on their own, dependent on themselves. But they, th think about it, right? If they had a mustard seed of faith, if they had gone with faith and reliance upon the living God, earnestly seeking his power, Jesus' implication is that they would have been successful in casting out this demon that they would have been able to do it. Not because they have the power, but because they would be depending on the one who does. So it's not that nothing will be impossible for us in our own plans, but rather when we yield ourselves to God by faith, our goals become His. His purposes are always accomplished. He is the one who can truly do the impossible. We simply get to watch Jesus' words in Matthew 7 play out. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What is that asking and knocking but prayer? What is that but prayer? And that brings us to verse 21. Um, now, when I read the text this morning, some of you may have been a little bit confused, right? Where's verse 21? Where is that? What's going on? Now, uh, if you have an older translation like the King James, everything was cool. Verse 21 was, was right there on the page. Um, so, so what's going on? Now, if you have a modern translation, you can look down and you'll see a little footnote that says some manuscripts include, this kind never comes out by prayer and fasting. Right? So our modern Bibles acknowledge that verse there. Um, but, but why is it not included in the main part of the text in our modern Bibles? Now, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds here because um, you're not going to think about this probably after you walk out the door, but I want you to know you can trust your Bible. So I'm going to explain just a little bit what's going on. Um, the Bibles we have are English translations of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscripts, right? Um, copies of the original manuscripts that have been preserved and passed down and recopied throughout time. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, really what we're looking at is an English translation of a whole bunch of copies that people have made throughout history of Matthew's original writing. Okay? Now the King James translators, other older Bible translators, had a very small and limited amount of manuscripts to work with. Right? They, they didn't have very many at all. What they had was good, but we have found thousands more since then. I mean, tens of thousands more, really. And that gives us a much more accurate idea of what the original manuscripts contain. Right? Um, that's why modern translations are, are different in some minor areas than versions like the King James or the Geneva Bible. Um, that's why the King James includes verse 21. The manuscripts that they had had verse 21 right there, but the ESV doesn't. Right? Because now that we have a lot more manuscripts, the majority of them don't include verse 21. Now, the thought being that Matthew, right, may not have written verse 21, but somebody added it in later, right, as a copyist. So that's where there's a difference there. 
Um, but here's the thing. When it comes to verse 21, I think we can definitely know and believe that Jesus said these words that day. Why? Because Mark 9.29 says those. And there's no controversy about Mark 9.29. Everybody agrees. That was there. Mark wrote that, right, in the original manuscript. This kind comes out uh, by prayer. And so we're going to go with verse 21, right? I think it's safe to say Jesus said that. Um, that's, that is biblical. Mark backs us up on that. So looking at verse 21, I'm sorry if it's in your footnote and you have to squint down there at the tiny little writing. Uh, but Jesus tells the disciples that this demon is the kind that could only come out through prayer and fasting. The kind could only come out through prayer and fasting. This is not so much a statement on demonology that we need to add to our exorcism manual. Hopefully none of you have an exorcism manual that you're running around <laughs> using. Um, this is really a statement that emphasizes the dependence on God that the disciples needed to cast out the demon. That's Jesus' point. Think about what he says was necessary to be successful in casting this demon out. Prayer and fasting. Prayer is asking God to do what we cannot. Prayer is putting all things in his hands. Prayer is saying, Lord, I can't do it. I need you to do it. Prayer is dependence on God. Fasting is putting aside our own desires and cares and focusing more on God's. Trusting him to sustain us. It's self-denial, right? Both prayer and fasting put our focus and our dependence on God, not on ourselves. Prayer and fasting wouldn't turn the disciples into superheroes, but it would cause them to rely on the one who has all power and all might, who could actually cast out the demon. The disciples' failure was the result of their lack of faith, and that lack of faith was seen by their lack of prayer, and their lack of fasting before attempting to do this work. A faithless dependence on themselves had led to a failed attempt. And friends, we should expect the same to be the case for us. Without a prayerful dependence on God, we should not expect any success in spiritual endeavors. If we're not depending on the Lord, we should not expect His blessing to go with us. If we're not depending on Him, He will leave us to our own strength and He will show us just how weak we are. Right? We shouldn't expect success in our evangelism, in our study of God's word, in discipleship, in our growth in godliness. We may make the greatest attempt and put all of our strength into it, but if we are not depending on God, if we are not praying to him earnestly, we should expect to fail. Now, God doesn't always let us fail. Sometimes he's very gracious to us. But we should expect to. We're going to depend on ourselves. And why does God let us fail when we attempt things in a self-reliant and faithless way? To teach us to depend on Him. Right? Why do we let our, our, our toddlers try to do things by themselves and cause a disaster? To show them why they need our help. And maybe you can think of areas in your own individual life where you've seen this to be true. Perhaps enduring suffering. You tried to do it all by yourself in your own strength and you just found yourself uh, falling apart. Perhaps, deal, perhaps dealing with your sin. You say, I'm just going to overcome this. I'm going to change my behavior and yet fall back into it again and again and again and again. Whatever the case may be, learn from this. We, we must acknowledge our weakness and our lack before God and prayerfully seek to depend on Him before anyone and anything else. Friend, how often and how earnestly do you pray regarding 
kingdom things. How, how, how often do your prayers reflect Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do more than we can ask or think? Or do we just settle for small prayers because we lack faith that God is able to do more? Brothers and sisters, I, I, I cannot help but think of our church as we consider this passage. I, I think it's worth considering, are we being as effective in God's hands as we could be? Are we depending on Him beyond just what we acknowledge? Are, are we really seeing as many people come to faith in Christ as we could be? Are we seeing God bless the preaching of His Word? And the study of His Word as much as we could be? Are we seeing God heal broken relationships as much as we could be? Are we seeing Christian growth and sanctification as much as we could be? And I suspect the answer is no. I suspect the answer is no. Today is our prayer meeting after service. Um, and it, it's true, right? We have weaknesses of the flesh. We have much to do in our lives. But how many will attend? How many will attend? At our last prayer meeting, there were two. There were two. And this is not a, a rebuke. This is not to put a burden of guilt or shame upon anyone. It's not to guilt trip you into going today. But it's rather to state, what are we willing to do in order to be effective for the kingdom of heaven? How much are we really depending upon the Lord? I hope you're not depending on me. I hope you're not depending on yourself. I hope you're not depending on our website, right, or, or whatever the case may be. Brothers and sisters, are we depending on God as much as we could be? And does our life of prayer and self-denial as a church reflect that? That's a hard question, but it's an important question. What might we see? Think about it. Just dream with me for a moment here. What might we see God doing if our prayer meetings were filled with Christians desperately casting themselves upon the living God for help? Beseeching heaven with kingdom-centered requests and praises. What might we see God do? Ephesians 3.20 tells us more than we can ask or think. How much more might we be willing to give up comfort for the sake of the kingdom if we willingly denied ourselves? How much, brothers and sisters, are we depending on ourselves, content with little faith? Instead of fully depending on God and in faith, asking Him to move the mountains of sin and unbelief in Carson City, in northern Nevada. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that we've barely begun to see what God and His power can do in our church and in Carson City. Now, the question is, are we willing to cast ourselves aside and throw ourselves upon Him, asking Him, help my unbelief, help me to grow in faith. Are we willing to prayerfully and earnestly pursue God's blessing in order to see those mountains move? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are almighty. There is nothing too great for You. There is nothing that is too hard for You to do. There is not one of your purposes or promises that you are unable to accomplish. But you are the Almighty, the living God. You are a God who is worthy of great faith. A God who is right 
to depend on. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our little faith. Lord, that at times we have simply been content with our stagnancy. Lord, that we are satisfied with little faith. Instead of crying out, help my unbelief. Father, forgive us for our lack of prayer. For depending on ourselves. Instead of earnestly and persistently coming before you. Lord, would you enliven our hearts. Would you reveal to us just how powerless we are, Lord? And just how powerful you are? And Lord, may that drive us to prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be expectant. Lord, as we seek you, expectant to see your hand at work in great and amazing ways, whether that be visible to us or not. But help us to ask in faith. And to beseech you in faith. Father, we pray you would make our church an effective church for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would seek more blessing from your hand, that Christ would be more glorified. That we would know him more. That we would see others believing in him. Experiencing the joy of having their sins forgiven and being reconciled to the living God through believing the gospel. Lord, we know you are capable of doing all these things and more, and so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who hears our prayers. Lord, spur us on towards greater godliness, greater effectiveness for the sake of your name, not ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.